Thanks for tuning in today. You're listening to the official podcast of First Alliance Church in Great Falls, Montana, creating passionate followers of Christ. Today's message is from lead pastor John Reese. Have you ever had a time in your life when God said no to something you really wanted? You know, maybe it was a dream you had for your life that didn't materialize. Think of, think of a time that you wanted to do something significant with your life, only to have it stopped and discover it's not going to happen. You know, it might have been a worthy cause, it might have been a great idea, but apparently it wasn't God's plan for you. And that's hard for us. That's hard for us to accept when that happens. But that's what David's going to face in the passage we're looking at this morning. David is now king over all of Israel. He has been fighting wars for them, and they have had victory after victory. The, The land is becoming secure. David is now at the high water mark in his life. Not only has he won these battles and subdued Israel's enemies, he has captured Jerusalem and made it his city. He's taken the ark of God into the city. Uh, The kingdom's finally at peace for the first time in centuries. They're getting rest. He has brought the nation uh, a level of unprecedented prosperity and international influence. The economy's up. Inflation and unemployment are down. <laughs> and his approval rating's through the roof. Almost everything he's done has been successful. And so now, uh, the question he has is, what's next? What should I do now? Now, you have to understand this. David is an ambitious man. That's one of the things that makes him a great leader. But, he, but driven man he is, he's agitated when he doesn't have a goal before him. You know, someone suggests that he's a little like Alexander the Great who wept because there are no more worlds to conquer. <laughs> and so, in this time of reflection, David comes up with this great idea. David wants to build God a house. We're looking at chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, and let's see how it describes it here. In verses 1 and 2, we're told that when King David was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding nations and enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet. Look, David said, I'm living in this beautiful place as the cedar palace, but the ark of God is still in a tent. David hasn't known peace like this in his entire adult life. He hasn't had peace like this since he was a shepherd boy. There are no enemies now trying to invade his nation, and so... One of the first things he does is he builds this beautiful palace for himself, a home that's worthy of a king. He now has a house with cedar panels. It's incredibly beautiful. It's fragrant. It's very expensive. With conquest come riches. 
And David's enjoying the benefits of success. But then he starts to feel kind of uncomfortable about something. While he's living in luxury, the ark of God remained in a tent, and David thought to himself, that's not right. God's the one who put me where he did, and it's not right that I, the servants, should be so honored while the symbol of God's majesty on earth dwells in a common tent. God, shouldn't God be honored above me, his servant? And, and since David was not thinking about moving into a tent right now to equal things, he considered upgrading the accommodations for the ark to something more appropriate. And he reasons that if he lives in a palace, then surely the ark of God should have a better dwelling place than it does. At least it should be equal to what he has, maybe even better. It's not enough just to have it in the ark in Jerusalem. It has to have suitable quarters. There's something wrong when the Lord's servant is living in luxury while the sign of God's presence sits in a temporary shelter. And so David says, I want to build God a house, a temple, a magnificent temple, a temple that people will take note of, that people from miles around would come to, a temple that does justice to who God is. And so he asks the prophet to come, and he tells him what's on his heart. He tells him, you know, he's uncomfortable that he has a nice place, and, and God's ark is in a tent, and... In verse 3, Nathan says, yeah, it sounds really good. Do whatever you've in your mind. The Lord is with you. It's obvious the Lord's with you. Everything you're doing is working well. Now, I understand Nathan's not speaking as a prophet here. He has received no word from the Lord on this matter yet. He just expressed his personal view that David's idea was a good idea. After all, he said, the Lord is with David. And so it sounded like a great idea. I mean, what minister turns away a gift from a wealthy man? <laughs> and how can a desire to honor God like that be bad? There's only one problem is that nobody bothered to check with God. Secondly, then, God says, thanks, but no thanks. Thanks. You know, I didn't see that one coming. <laughs> We're told this in verse 4. He says, that same night, the Lord said to Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Now, this is after Nathan's already told him, it's okay, God, God's going to bless you in this endeavor. But God corrects Nathan that night. He says, go tell my servant David, this is what the Lord has declared. Are you the one to build a house for me to live in? <laughs> Have I ever lived in a house? <laughs> From the day I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until this day, I've always moved from one place to another in a tent and tabernacle as my dwelling. Yet no matter where I have gone with the Israelites, I have never once complained to the Israel's tribal leaders and the shepherds of my people Israel. I've never asked them, why haven't you built me a beautiful cedar house? Now, now, David's idea here was a good idea, but it wasn't God's idea. God has a different plan, and that plan doesn't include David building a temple. 
R.C. Phillips points out this. He says, Nathan's initial endorsement of David's temple building scheme shows us the difference between the best reasoning of godly men, and that's just natural that you would think that was a good idea, and the word of God as prophetically revealed. He says, it is evident that David's, Nathan's answered David according to his own spiritual judgment, not after having consulted the Lord, because God corrects his thinking later that night. In fact, God's going to tell David that he's not really permitted to build his house because of the nature of the roles he's had to play in God's story. You see this not in this passage here, but you see this in Chronicles, which is talking about some of the same events. And at the later in Chronicles, toward the end of David's life, we're told that he's having a conversation with his son Solomon. And in 1 Chronicles 22, 6 through 8, we're told this, David sent for his son Solomon and instructed him to build a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel. And then he says this, he says, my son, I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord God But the Lord said to me, you have killed many men in the battles you have fought. And since you have shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. It's as if God tells David, your plan's not a bad plan. It's a great idea, but it's not my plan. I appointed you to be a king, to lead my people, to secure the land. I didn't appoint you to build a temple. It's not really a question of David being wrong here or having, you know, a wrong idea. It's a question of accepting God's no and the mystery of his will. God often has reasons that we don't fully understand, reasons for things. David's job has been to unite Israel and to destroy Israel's enemies. It's been a huge and bloody task. It was a task that God had given him, but God did not want his temple built by a warrior. God's temple was to signify God's peace, and, and it, was to be, it was not appropriate for a man of war to build it. And so David humbly accepted his part in God's plan, and he didn't go beyond it. David instead would spend the rest of his life gathering materials from all around the world so that the dream could be carried out, but the dream would not happen in his lifetime. Thirdly, then, in this passage, we see God makes some promises to David. David's request was good, but God said no, but that doesn't mean that he is rejecting David. In fact, when God says no to this, he lets David know that he's planning something even greater for him. Something even greater than building the temple. At the same time, God turned down David's request to build him a house. He promises to build David a house. Nathan the prophet is told this by God. He says, now, go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. And he reminds David where he's come from. You are nothing. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture. You were just a shepherd boy. And I selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And we've seen that over and over again in this series. 
I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Listen to this next line. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on earth. (laughs) And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel. And I will give rest to you from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. David wanted to build a house for God, but God puts the shoe on the other foot and says, no, I'm the one that's going to build a house here. I'm going to be the house builder. Instead of you building a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, I understand the word house can refer to a building, but it can also uh, be a household or a dynasty like the house of Windsor. Uh, David's hopes to build a house for God are in the first sense. He wanted to build a place of, of worship for God. But God tells David he's the one who's going to build a house, and he's talking about the second sense. He's going to build a dynasty through David. God says in verse 12, When you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your own offspring, and he will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like a father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul. I took my favor away from Saul. Your descendants, I'm not going to take my favor away from. I took my favor away from Saul by removing him from your sight. But your house, your kingdom will continue before me for all time. And your throne will be secure forever. And so Nathan went back to David and told him everything the Lord had said in the vision. Although David's son Solomon would build a temple, God himself is going to be the ultimate giver. And the house he proposes to build is going to be a house that will go on forever. And so God is the one who will be the initiator, not David. And David is not an active initiator, but a passive recipient. In effect, God says to David, You're really not the one who's going to do something for me. You're only going to do things through me. It's by my sheer grace that you have power. It's by my sheer grace that you have success. And instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. Now, there could be a lot of reasons for all that's happening here. Eugene Peterson suggests one. He says, he says this. He says, you know what I think? <laughs> and this is just a man's thoughts. But he says, I think David was just about to cross over a line from being full of God to being full of himself. David's riding the crest of great acclaim, having decisively defeated the opposition, united God's people, and captured the uh, allegiance of all Israel. He was heavy with success, and he was beginning to think, I want to do something significant for God. (laughs) But he says, if David continues on this road, he could go too far. (laughs) 
and ruin himself as a representative of God's kingdom. He says, if any of us develops an identity in which God and God's grace is less important to us than who we are, then our action and performance, our ability to represent God's kingdom is utterly ruined. That, that, that could be what's happening here, partly. Actually, what you have in this passage is what is called the Divinic Covenant. It's God's formal pledge to provide a last, an eternal da- dynasty from David to rule over the people. It's a story of what God's going to do for us, not what we as people are going to do for God. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He says, every other religion says, I will build you a house, and then God blesses. In other words, if you look at all the religions of the world, one of the first things they do is they build these magnificent temples to their gods. And and they do it to kind of earn approval from their God. He says, but in Christianity, God is the one who builds the house. And then he blesses you on top of that. (laughs) You know, after Adam sinned in the garden, God promised that a Savior would come into the world and restore the fallen people back to where God wants them to be. In the garden, he promised that a seed of the woman would come who would crush the tempter's head, the one who had so critically marred God's creation. And although David's seed is promised, and I should say it's through David's seed that the one who's coming is promised. Basically, God says to David here, that seed is coming through you, through your line. He's coming. He's going to establish a kingdom that's going to last forever. Jesus is going to be the savior of the world. And what you have to understand here, there's a a double fulfillment going on in these prophecies, which often happens in Old Testament prophecies. There's an immediate fulfillment, but there's a fuller fulfillment that happens later in time. For of this descendant of David who's going to build a house, God says this, I will be a father to him and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with the rod like any other father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. So that can't refer to Jesus because Jesus isn't going to be tempted to sin and fall into sin or anything like that. So that has to refer to to Solomon, David's son. But on the other hand, as he starts to talk about that, he he shifts into a higher gear and says, but this is going to be an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. And that's not really a picture of Solomon. The kingdom of Solomon is going to be broken up right after his reign. It's going to be broken into two kingdoms, and then it's going to be ups and downs in the kingdom, and, and, and eventually there's going to be no one on the throne. R.C. Phillips points out this. He says, students of Old Testament prophecy will discern in God's covenant promises to David, the phenomenon known as telescoping. He says this refers to the way in which prophecies speak of distant events, but also include near uh, typological fulfillment in which many of the features of the ultimate fulfillment are are discerned initially. Uh, A type is a picture of a coming event. A typological fulfillment is an event that points beyond itself it's a person or thing in the Old Testament that foreshadows a person or thing in the New Testament. 
And so God promises David that he's going to have a royal offspring, and it had a near fulfillment in the reign of David's son Solomon, whereas David was not permitted to build the temple, Solomon would build it. But it also had a complete fulfillment in Jesus. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, after David's death, the Lord gave David a son to sit on his national throne, whom the Lord would oversee as father with necessary chastening and discipline and mercy. That's Solomon. And a son who would rule an eternal kingdom that will be established forever. That's the Messiah. He says this prophecy referred in its immediacy to Solomon and, and to the temporal kingdom of David's family in the land, but in a larger and more sublime sense, it refers to David's greater son of another nature, Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 1.8 says, to this son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever, and you will rule with the scepter of justice. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David. The Lord told David, he's the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. The eternal kingship may come through Solomon's line, but he's not the eternal king. There's one coming after him who will fulfill that prophecy. Saul's line became extinct. It was snuffed out. Whereas the line of David would remain intact until the coming of the Lord Jesus. But because of Solomon and his descendants' sin, David's kingdom will suffer. It will be carved down to only two tribes, and, 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 and yet the line of the throne is going to continue. God would severely discipline many of Solomon's sinful successors, yet not to the point of removing his faithfulness from them. Eventually, the kingdom would come to an end because the sins of kings like Ahaz and Manasseh. And it would seem like the promise of God was null and void, that it wasn't going to be fulfilled, that it wasn't true. The kings had been taken away into exile. They were prisoners of war in foreign lands. But there's a reason why the book of Kings ends with a note that even in exile, while he's a prisoner of war, King Jehoiachin's life was spared. And he received favor in Babylon. It says this, it says, 2 Kings ends this way. In the 37th year of exile of King Jehoiakim of Judah, he's been in exile 37 years, evil Merodach ascended to the Babylonian throne and then it says, he was kind to Jehoiachin and released him from prison on April the 2nd of that year. He spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and gave him a higher place than all of the other exiled kings in Babylon. He supplied Jehoiachin with new clothes to replace his prison garb and allowed him to dine at the, in the king's presence for the rest of his life. So the Babylonian king gave him a regular, regular food allowance as long as he lived. That seems insignificant, but you know the significance of that? That means that even though the leader of Israel had been taken into captivity, he was not put to death. The royal heir was still alive, and so 
The depressing story of the kings ends with a note of hope. There's still a prospect of a future for the house of David. 37 years he's in captivity, and God is still protecting the line of David. It's still possible to have a king in David's line sit on the throne. God preserved David's line for this. This, you can imagine, a lot of this is just overwhelming to David, and all that he can do is give thanks to God. So next we see David thanks God. When David realizes that God has a plan for him that's much bigger than the plan he had for himself, he bows before God and offers thanks. This section records David's prayer of expressing his humble acceptance of God's promise to extend his dynasty forever and his amazement that God would do that for him to honor someone like him. Notice it starts off with David saying, who am I? Who am I? David knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He knows his failures and he's had successes, yes, but he has had a lot of failures too. There's a tone of total disbelief in David that God would choose him for the role that he has given him. And then in verse 18, King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Oh, who am I, O sovereign Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? You brought me from the fields to the head of the kingdom. And then you tell me that I'm the father of an even greater kingdom that would go on forever. And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant this lasting dynasty? I like to think of that phrase where it says David sat before the Lord. You know, in, in sitting down, David puts himself in that posture of receiving from God. Now he's not telling God what I'm going to do. He's receiving from God. He's the king. He's in control. But he's not telling God anymore what he's doing. He relinquishes control and sits quietly at God's feet. Eugene Peterson says this. He says, what we don't do for God is often far more critical than what we in fact do. You might have to think about that one for a moment. He says, God is the beginning and the center and the end of life, but we are often unaware of God's action except dimly and peripherally, especially when we're in full possession of our powers, you know, when we're full of who we are, <laughs> when our education is complete, when our careers are in full swing, when people are admiring us and prodding us onward, it's hard not to focus on what we have to offer, what we bring to the table. It's hard not to imagine that we're, we're the beginning, the center, and the end of our world, at least the part of the world in which we live. He says, sometimes we need to quit. <laughs> Quit whatever we're doing and sit down and shut up. He didn't say shut up. I added that. He says, when we sit down, the dust raised by our furious activity settles. The noise generated by our building operations go quiet. We become aware of the real world, God's world. 
And what we see leaves us breathless. It's so much larger, so much more full of energy and action than our ego-fueled actions. So much clearer and saner than the plans we have projected. He said modern Christians are characteristically afraid of being caught doing too little for God, let alone nothing. But there are moments far more frequent than what we think when doing nothing is precisely what he wants us to do. Now, he goes on and qualifies that really quickly, saying, I'm not talking about an irresponsible doing nothing. I'm, not, I'm talking about a worshipful listening to God. I'm not talking about laziness. I'm talking about waiting. I'm not talking about inactivity. It, it, it's a strategy of letting God lead. And he goes on and says this. He says, when David sat down before the Lord, it was the farthest, farthest thing from passivity or resignation. It was prayer. It was entering into the presence of God, becoming aware of God's word, trading his plans in for God's plans, letting his enthusiasm for being king with authority and strength to do something for God be replaced with the willingness to become a king who would represent truly the sovereignty of the God, the high king. Now, that's a complicated way of saying What I can say in a sentence, because I'm so much more intelligent, and that is, be still and know that I am God. There's a time to stop our our frenzied activity and just listen to God. God has just told David what he's going to do for him. It was pointed out, and I didn't count them, so if they're wrong, I'm not the one wrong. It's the one that told me that they're wrong, okay? But it's been pointed out that God used 23 first-person verbs in addressing David. 23 times he said, I will, I will, I will, I will. This is what I'm going to do. More important than what you're going to do for me is what I'm going to do for you. And I just want to read this next portion because there's nothing I can add to it, but he says this. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, sovereign Lord, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty. Do you deal with everyone this way, O sovereign Lord? (laughs) Are you this generous and gracious to all your people? I mean, I'm so unworthy of this. Is this the way you treat everybody? What more can I say to you? You know what your servant is really like, O sovereign Lord, because you, of of your promise and according to your will, you have done all these great things and have made them known to your servant. How great are, are you, O sovereign Lord? There's no one like you. We have never even heard of another God like you. What other nation on earth has a God like Israel? What other nation, O God, have you redeemed from slavery to be your own people? You've made a great name for yourself when you redeemed your people from Egypt. You performed awesome miracles and drove out the nations and gods that stood in your way. You made Israel your very own people forever, and you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, I'm your servant. Do as you have promised concerning me and my family. Confirm it as a promise that will last forever. 
And may your name be honored forever so that everyone will say the Lord of heaven's armies is God over Israel. And may the house of your servant David continue before you forever. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, I've been bold enough to pray this prayer to you because you have revealed this to your servant saying, I will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For you, O Lord, O sovereign Lord, your words are truth and and you have promised these good things to your servant. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you, for you have spoken. I bring these things back to you because they're what you said. I'm claiming your promises. And when you grant a blessing to your servant, O sovereign Lord, it is an eternal blessing. God might have said no to David's request to build a temple, but the things God promises David return, turn out to be much bigger and much greater than what David could even offer to God. And David's humble praise for God's grace knows no ends. He can't express enough how grateful he is to God. He now knows more fully that it's what God does, not what he can do for God that really matters. If any of us develop a mindset that what we do for God more than what he does for us is what gives us significance, we've missed the message of Christianity. God's grace is more important than our actions and performance. And so offer God who you are and what you have, but but let him determine how he's going to use you and, and praise him for what he has done for you already the eternal riches he has given you. After all, that's what really matters. Charles Swindoll ends his commentary on this passage with the following comments. He says this. When God says no, it means he has a better way and he expects me to support it. And my best reaction is cooperation and humility. He continues. God doesn't call everyone to build a temple, but he does call everyone to be faithful and obedient. He says, some of you who are reading this, and I would say hearing this this morning, are living with broken hearts, broken dreams. Sometime in the past, you had high hopes for your life and how it would go in a certain direction, but the Lord, for some mysterious reason, has said no. And God has his reasons for saying no. Even when the purposes we have are positive for him he says and you've moved along in life and now maybe you're up in years and you find yourself slowly becoming shelved the younger ones are taking charge and moving on and how quickly age takes over he says just the time when we get our act together we're too old to pull it off (laughs) and so we turn it over to the solomons in our lives But it takes real humility to say to that person, may God be with you and do everything, I'll do everything I can to support you and help you see that you accomplish some of the dreams that I had for my life. He continues and says this, Wendell says, one of my favorite poems comes to mind at moments like this. One by one he took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was empty-handed Every glittering toy was lost. And I walked earth's highways grieving in my rags and poverty till I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me. 
So I held my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his transcendent riches till I could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull (laughs) that God could not pour his riches into hands that were already full. Do you identify with David in this passage? Did you have your hands full of dreams and visions for your life? Maybe they were even things you wanted to present to God. Did you have plans all prepared and thought through only to see them crumble at your feet and now you're standing empty-handed thinking, what do I have left to give? I want to say to you that God is ready to fill those empty hands like you would never believe if you only lift them up in obedience and praise to him. God's still alive and well and he knows what he's doing to some he says yes, to some he says no. In either case, his answer is always the best. Why? Because God's answers, while sometimes surprising, are never wrong. And one of the things he wants us to learn more than anything else is what he gives more than what we give that really matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we read this, we are humbled before you. Lord, I think of how many times I've prayed, use me, use me, use me, and when you just wanted to pray, me to pray, make me usable. Let you determine how you use your vessels, Lord, but may we always be at that place of sitting at your feet, receiving from you. And may we be more caught up with who you are and what you have for us than what we can do for you. May our actions for you flow out of the gratitude we have for what you've already done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you are blessed by the message today. Follow us on social media to keep up to date with church news and events.